38 or open up your bulletin. The text is also printed on page 6. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I'm the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Buenos dias y bienvenidos. La lectura de hoy viene del Evangelio de Lucas, capítulo 1, versículos 26 al 38. A los seis meses, Dios envió al ángel Gabriel a Nazaret, pueblo de Galilea, a visitar a una joven virgen comprometida para casarse con un hombre que se llamaba José, descendiente de David. La Virgen se llamaba María. El ángel se acercó a ella y le dijo, Te saludo, tú que has recibido el favor de Dios. El Señor está contigo. Ante estas palabras, María se perturbó y se preguntaba, ¿Qué podría significar este saludo? No tengas miedo, María. Dios te ha concedido su favor, le dijo el ángel. Quedarás encinta y darás a luz a un hijo. Y le pondrás por nombre Jesús. Él será un gran hombre y lo llamarán Hijo del Altísimo. Dios el Señor le dará el trono de su padre David y reinará sobre el pueblo de Jacob para siempre. Su reinado no tendrá fin. ¿Cómo podrá suceder esto? Le preguntó María el ángel, puesto que soy virgen. El Espíritu Santo vendrá sobre ti y el poder del Altísimo te cubrirá con su sombra. Así que al santo niño que va a nacer lo llamarán hijo de Dios. También tu parienta Elizabeth va a tener un hijo en su vejez. De hecho, la que decían que era estéril ya está en el sexto mes de su embarazo, porque para Dios no hay nada imposible. Aquí tienes a la sierva del Señor, contestó María, que haga conmigo como me has dicho. Con esto el ángel la dejó. This morning we have a special treat in having a guest preacher, a guest speaker this morning, part of our 
part of the joys of being in a extended family of congregations throughout this city uh, is having uh, wonderful, uh, gifted, uh, solid men of God who are pastoring these different congregations, um, but also able to share their gifts across congregations as well. And so we thought, hey, let's let's rotate each other around this December and uh, and preach in the different pulpits um, in our network. And so today, this morning, we have our brother Mike Park, uh, Reverend Mike Park, who is uh, from our downtown congregation, one of the pastors there. Mike actually grew up in this area uh, and recently returned, uh, was most recently in St. Louis, uh, but joined the team downtown um, just a couple of months ago. And we're so blessed to have you, brother, uh, both in our uh, ministry setting here in D.C., but also here this morning. Why don't you come on up, and I'd love to pray for you as we welcome you here. He is not feeling well this morning uh, and is so kind to slug it out uh, together with us. Actually, he and his whole family be praying for them um, that God would sustain them, and I'm going to pray that right now. So let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for this brother, and thank you for uh, calling him to be your son. I pray that that would be his deepest assurance and joy in this moment, but we pray specifically that you would uh, pour out your spirit upon his body, that you would give him relief, you would give him strength and endurance, uh, that you would give him the freedom uh, to be weak, knowing that you uh, love to show your power through our weakness. Um, but we expect great things from the power of your word to be communicated through him. And so we thank you for his ministry now. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we welcome our brother? Good morning. I do apologize uh, if I'm not coherent. I have uh, four little children under the age of six. And... Um, you know, if you're a parent, you know how this goes. Uh, when one of them brings a virus, they are very generous, and they share that with everyone, and uh, we are now suffering together as a family. So thank you for having me, and it's good to say good morning. Uh, as many of you know, downtown, we meet at 5 p.m., so by the time we get to church, the sun is down and you're depressed, you know. Um, you're thinking we've got to put the kids to sleep soon. So it's really good to be here in the morning to be able to worship. And uh, thank you for the worship. I really enjoyed it. So thank you very much. I want to table my uh, sermon this morning by talking about what Duke already alluded to earlier as we uh, lit the candle. Advent simply means the coming of Christ. And we do two things during this Advent season. First is to look back at what Christ has done when he came to earth taking on human flesh to enter into our mess, not as a God who is distant and indifferent to our concerns and worries and brokenness, but a God who enters into our mess to be with us. So we celebrate that, but we also look forward to what he's going to do when he returns for the second time. And then he's going to renew all things the way our hearts so dearly long for. And so as we live in between the two Advents, we look back and we are grateful, but we also look forward and we are thankful and we anticipate all that God is going to do. But that means something for us in the meantime. 
We are not bystanders watching God do his work. You see, Christianity is not like football, where 22 men are killing themselves on the field while thousands spectate. Rather, Christianity calls us, God calls us to enter into the field in which God is doing his work through his body. And we join his work in doing this kingdom work that Christ began with his first coming and is going to complete with his second coming. So that's how our talk this morning is going to be. And I want to, as we enter into the mind and the heart and the struggle of Mary, try to draw out lessons for us that are applicable in our life. With that in mind, let's pray and we'll get into the text. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you are God with us. You're Emmanuel. And it's not because we are so righteous or religious, but it's because we are broken that you had mercy on us and enter into our mess and our brokenness to renew us so that we, as your people, can live to worship you, to honor you, and to draw closer to you and become like you. And by doing so, impact this world that you have called us and placed us into. So we ask that you would speak to us this morning and allow your word to really convict us, encourage us, and heal us so that we as your people can mirror you better in this coming year. In Christ's name, amen. Gabriel's announcement is really the culmination of the Old Testament. Jesus himself said this at the end of Luke. He said, all of the Old Testament is really speaking about me. And ever since Genesis 3.15, with the first announcement of this good news, the people of God have anticipated this conqueror who is going to come and defeat the enemy of the people of God. And the New Testament opens with this very announcement that the one we had been waiting for has come. The son of David, son of Abraham, has arrived. And this is indeed good news. And here, in Gabriel's description of Jesus, we begin to see just who he is and the connection that he has with the Old Testament. Gabriel said that he, Jesus, would be called the son of the Most High, referring to his, his identity as the son of God. Not only that, the Lord would give him the throne of his father David that he would be the son of David who will reign on that throne forever and ever. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. And these four descriptions are rich with Old Testament reference and really echoes back to 2 Samuel 7 and also Daniel 7, where it really talks about son of David, this king who will come to reign over the people of God, and this son of God, the ancient of days, who will come and, and usher in his kingdom. And Jesus basically began this work. When, he's, when he entered into our mess as a babe, he began with him this kingdom work of ushering the kingdom of God with him. And the Bible calls us as Christians, as recipients of this great calling, not simply to spectate on the sidelines, but to join in the work that he is doing. You see, God is bringing his kingdom it is a promise, a guaranteed promise, but it is not automatic. It calls us to participate as active players in the work that God is doing. But it's a mess messy process. This idea of getting involved in the kingdom work, this idea of 
living for something bigger than ourselves, this idea of receiving and, and, and really just diving head, head first to the work that God is doing in ushering the kingdom is a messy work. And none of us, none of us get it right the first, second, third, fourth, or the fifth time. It's a messy process. And as long as we're on this side of eternity, we're going to fumble where we are through. But by the grace of God, we will slowly but surely learn to commit ourselves to become people who are called to live for God. I don't know about you, but every uh, year around this time, I make it a ritual uh, to watch the Lord of the Rings series. I will, um, before I moved down or moved over to D.C., I used to kind of lock myself in the basement and go through the trilogy about three, four times in this Advent season. Um, and it is true, pastors, whenever we watch movies or listen to a song or whatever, we, we see with the lens of illustration. We're always thinking about how can I use this in a sermon illustration? And I remember watching the Fellowship of the Ring for the first time and really identifying myself with the character Boromir. You remember him? He's a guy who felt threatened by the king because there was a tension in his own heart because he was the heir to, to the throne of Gondor. And, and as you see this character and the story play out in the movie, at least for me, I, I began to sympathize with him and realize, man, I, I am li like him. I am spiritually bipolar. I am committed to two kingdoms, the kingdom of God, which I am called to, and my own kingdom that I so try hard to, to improve. And this is the reality for all of us. If you are a Christian, I'm sure you feel that tension in your own heart as you struggle to live for the kingdom of God, yet you sense within your own heart your desire to live for your own kingdom. And yet God calls us to abandon our kingdoms and to live for his. So how do we do that? If we have this high calling of living for God, yet the reality in which we live is a messy one, how do we transition from this reality that we find ourselves in, even this morning, to becoming people who are committed to that? And as we turn to the story that we have read this morning, we're going to look at three things that will help us land us in a place of deeper commitment to Christ. The first thing I want to talk about is learning to live with questions. Learning to live with questions. Mary, in light of this great announcement, raised a very simple and practical question. She asked, how will this be since I am a virgin? How can this be? How can I be with the child, the son of God, who is going to reign on David's throne forever? How can this be since I am a virgin? You see, questions are part and parcel of this process of committing ourselves to Christ. And questions are not all bad. I don't know about you, but I grew up in a church where questions and any form of doubt were considered unbelief. And so we were discouraged from raising questions, any sort of questions. And anyone who had any doubt were labeled as people who didn't believe the gospel. But there are genuine questions, I believe, that seek to test out the truth. And perhaps some of you here this morning, Christian or non-Christian, have questions on your heart. Questions about God, questions about his word, questions about the world you and I live in. 
And these questions are okay. As we seek to know the truth behind the questions, I believe these questions could do a couple of things. First, questions could deepen our faith. According to many researchers, young people who leave home to go to college or move away from their home to a new environment for work or whatnot often abandon their faith for a number of reasons, one of which is because they fail to internalize the faith of their parents. Never did they stop to ask the question, why do I believe in what I believe? And the church wasn't help, uh, very much helpful in this regard. The church basically, in the name of blind faith, encouraged us to just believe. Don't question, don't doubt, just believe. And somehow, it has upheld those who didn't seem to question anything and kind of ostracized those who had questions and doubts. And Tim Keller said this. He said, Christians who go through life too busy or indifferent to ask the hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experiences of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if he or she failed over the years to listen patiently to his or her own doubt. Isn't that true? If we don't let these questions and doubts linger in our heart, and if we don't work them out in community, allowing the tension to be there, and we just blindly accept whatever we have heard from our parents or pastors growing up, we're going to come undone. There will be experiences and questions that are going to stomp us, and we're not going to know what to say or how to handle it because we don't have categories for these things. So, on a practical level for Christians, learn to live well with your questions. Learn to live well with your questions. And don't let them derail you. Just because you have questions that can't be answered, don't let them derail you. Rather, allow them to linger. And live in that tension of not knowing what to say or how to resolve this. And work them out in community. Work them out in community. And I know this is our heart, our desire as Grace uh, Downtown as well as this church. We want our communities, our small groups to be a place, a safe place, where we can raise questions of all sorts without feeling judged or condemned. But being able to work that out together as a faith community wrestling and working through these things together. So whether here at church, I know Duke, after his messages, love to field questions or e even in your small groups, I pray that you would voice and articulate some of the questions and concerns that you have. And I pray that as a faith community that we will receive them well and their questions and learn to work through them. The second thing that questions can do is to move us toward God. Move us toward God. Mary's question, how would this be since I'm a virgin, is not an expression of doubt, but it actually moves her toward God with an openness and willingness to obey. I, I experienced this with my wife as we were raising questions about moving to Grace, uh, D.C. A uh, number of months ago, we got an email from Glenn asking if I'd be interested in this position. And at that time, uh, we were out in St. Louis where having four children was completely normal. If you didn't have more than three kids, you were looked down upon, okay? And if you didn't drive a minivan or this gigantic V8 
you know, gas guzzler, then something was wrong with you. I mean, that's the life that we were a part of. And as we contemplated the thought of moving to D.C., having four children, okay, and, ha and driving a minivan, okay, we, we, were, we were worried. We were concerned. We weren't sure how we were going to make it. And I remember we visited once to check out D.C., and we were walking down Wisconsin Avenue, and sure enough, the four, four kids and my wife and I, as we were walking down this narrow sidewalk, sidewalk, I mean, it was like Moses parting the Red Sea. Everyone seeing us kind of <laughs> moved to the side, and one lady, in fact, said, oh, my. <laughs> she couldn't believe that they were all our children. And so as we were praying through this, our question initially was, how are we going to make it in D.C.? The ministry sounds great to be a part of what God is doing at Grace DC. It sounds amazing. A and the fact that we can come back home to be near our parents sounds great. But are we going to make it as a family of six? And as we began to raise this question and many others like it and pray through it, we sense in our own hearts God working and changing us. So rather than worrying about all these things about living in D.C., we began, to, we began uh, to become open to the possibility of what God could do in our hearts, in our lives, and being able to raise our children in this environment and giving them a vision for what God wants to do in the city. And we, we got excited. And we sensed God really drawing us closer to him as we began raising questions. And he used those questions to open our hearts to the work that he wants to do in and through us. And I think that's the case for most of us. We have questions on our hearts, don't we? And it's okay to ask them. And as we ask and raise these questions, I think God uses them to really draw us closer to him. And I've noticed that as we, as we ask questions, that in light of God, our questions are sanctified. Our questions take on a different form. And I think it takes great humility on our part to acknowledge that our questions, like everything else, is fallen. And the questions that we think are so right because we feel like it at the moment, we need to learn to question them because they're just as broken as we are. And when we ask the question, the one that I've raised many times, and I'm sure you have too, does God care? I think we need to line that in light of the ultimate reality and truth that we see in the scripture. And the questions that we ask, questions such as, does God care, I think evolves into, how does God care for me in my situation, in this situation right now? Why? Because we understand that God, through the incarnation, through the cross and resurrection, loves us and cares for us. So that, as revealed in the scripture, cannot be something we question. Rather, in light of that truth, we need to question our question and begin to maybe reform our questions so that they fall in line with the God that we know in the word. So I encourage and challenge us as Christians. Yes, it's good to ask questions, but we need to allow these questions to be sanctified in light of who God is allow the ultimate truth of God to reshape our questions so that we don't question God's character as much as we begin to look for the ways that God is working in our life. The second thing I want to talk about is to count the cost. 
yes, we need to live well with the questions, but we need to also count the cost, the cost of obedience. In Mary's uh, case, it's the cost of obedience, right? As she pondered this message from Gabriel, she not only understood the greatness of the calling, but she also understood the cost of obedience. The text tells us that Mary is pledged to be married to Joseph, which in today's context is much like engagement, and maybe more so, somewhere between engagement and marriage. And being with a child at this point in her marriage would not only bring shame upon her, but possibly death according to the Old Testament law. And Mary is keenly aware of this. And she, on one hand, understands the great calling, but she also understands the cost of obedience, that this could amount to great shame in her own neighborhood, the people that she works with and lives with. And I thought about this for a minute, and I realized how powerful shame is, how so many of us, we are the product of us wanting to be loved and accepted and approved by others around us. We fear their rejection. We fear this. And so we, we become the type of person that they would approve of. And we make choices that they would approve of. But sometimes saying yes to God means saying no to the people who are dear to us. And this is exactly what Mary had to consider. And some of us, when we, whenever we talk about the cost of obedience, this is not only radical, but countercultural. We live in a world where we feel like we can pick and choose how we want to obey God, how we are going to honor him. We pick and choose the categories in which we say, yes, I, I, I want that. Yeah, I like that. But the other things, I'm not so sure. And that's why we have people who say things like, I love Jesus, but I hate religion. And it's this idea of picking and choosing on my own terms, out of my own convenience, how I'm going to obey God and live for him. But this kind of idea is not biblical. The kind of obedience and discipleship that the Bible calls us to is, is to give all of ourselves, to give everything that we have, everything we are in obedience to God, even though we can't do it perfectly. And some of you may be saying, well, couldn't I do this when I get a little older? Couldn't I do this when I'm married, have children, and settle down? Because in my 20s and 30s, I, I want to be able to live my own life. I want to do my own thing, and couldn't I then become or take God a little more seriously and become the person that honors God, right? become the person that God wants me to be? And I would say... Remember what the scripture says. Do not be deceived. You reap what you sow. The choices you make in your 20s and 30s, for that matter, the choices that we make all of our life have consequences. The seed of disobedience that we sow is going to ultimately end up as a harvest. And so the, this, the choices that we make in our 20s and 30s and 40s, whenever it may be, is shaping us into the person that whether we like it or not, that we're becoming. And someone once said that no experience lives unto itself. Every decision we make 
is helping us to become that person. It becomes a way of life. So I want to challenge those of us who think that maybe you are still young and you can live life and when you're older and settle down that you will become the man or the woman of God that he has called you to be. And I would say consider what the word says. You reap what you sow. In the present, through the choices that you make, you're becoming someone. Whether you like that person or not, you're becoming that person. So I would say consider the cost of following Christ and have a long-term perspective of the harvest that you will reap. And in the meantime, sow the seed of obedience so you become the person that God wants you to be. Finally, humble submission. We live with questions, we count the cost, but this is where I believe God wants us to be, and he will help us to be, to be in a place of humble submission to God. Gabriel responds to Mary by saying, God will accomplish this. How would this happen? I'm a virgin, how can this be? And Gabriel says, God will do this. His word never fails. And Gabriel reminds Mary that God is sovereign, that he doesn't need our permission to do his work, that he is mysterious, that he doesn't always work in ways that we want him to, and he is always close and personal. He is God who is working. And in light of this truth, Mary responds by saying, if this is true, then I want this to be. I am your humble servant. And Gabriel basically says, look, Elizabeth, who is barren, is with a child, and you, who are a virgin, will be with a child, and both are the works of God. The phrase, the most high will overshadow you, it really echoes back to Genesis chapter 1, where God is beginning something new. And here, with the birth of Jesus, God is beginning something new, a new era, a time of his kingdom through the, uh, the person and the work of Christ. And this is the assurance that you and I have as we think about learning to commit ourselves to Christ. How do we go from the questions that we have and counting the cost, which seems so daunting, to a place where we can submit ourselves to God? It's by his grace for us. Here in verse 28, the passage tells us that the Lord is with you. The Lord is with Mary. Mary is not sinless or had special favor that none of us had. Rather, the God who is with us was with Mary. And the same grace that helped her to work through this process is with us. And so those of us who are stuck at the questions or stuck at counting the cost have this very hope that God is with us and he's going to help us get to the place where we can submit our lives and say, God, it seems impossible, but if this is your calling for me in this church, in this community, in this neighborhood, and in this city, to make an impact for the kingdom of God through my simple obedience, then here I am. God is going to do this. The, the phrase, the Lord is with you, is a common Old Testament greeting which reassured the recipient that God is not only with you, but he is with you to help you, to see it through. The God who is present with you is going to make sure that you, you accomplish this very task. Remember the story of Moses? I mean, if we think we have been given a tall order, think about Moses who was commanded to lead his people out of the bondage of Egypt. 
And Moses asked the very same question. How can this be? Like, I, I don't even know how to speak well. And if I go back, my people, they're not going to listen to me. I'm a wanted criminal. And God said, I will be with you. And those words weren't just an assurance that Moses, look, I'm going to be there when you, when you feel lonely, when you feel rejected. No, those words were assurance that I will help you accomplish this very task. And that is the hope that you and I have, that God is with us. So think of it this way. Every obedience and even the struggle for obedience is evidence of God's presence and work in our life. I think of it this way. I used to think and be discouraged because of the number of or the lack of obedience and the abundance of sin in my life. But I've realized over the years that each obedience, regardless of how small it may be, was really a miracle. God present with us. That he entered the world into my brokenness. And when I said, no, I hate you, I want nothing to do with you. That he, by his love and grace, won my heart over. And he's changing me and teaching me to say yes, even in small ways. So I don't think there is such thing as a small obedience. You being here this morning is an act of, an evidence of God's grace in your life. And when you say no to sin and yes to obedience, it's evidence that God is working in you. And isn't that what Paul said in Philippians 2.13? He said, for it is God who works in you to will and to act, to put that longing in your heart for obedience, longing for community, longing to see the kingdom of God come here to impact this very community, this neighborhood, is the work that God is doing in your heart. And to come together like this as a body of Christ, worshiping together, reminding one another of the vision that God has given this congregation is God thing. And he is doing his work here. And every Sunday, I hope and pray that you would be encouraged and that hope and vision would be renewed so that as you leave this service, that you would make a commitment to live for the kingdom of God and to see him working through you and through this church to make a difference in the broken lives that are right here around the corner. Let me challenge us as I leave with these few applications. We commit to God despite our limitations. And many of us, when we talk about committing ourselves to Christ, we automatically think about my limitations. I haven't been a Christian that long. I haven't even read the Bible from cover to cover. I'm not very holy. I don't know if I'm the right person for the job. Now I would say, look, God is sovereign. He is more than able to make up for what you and I lack in. So regardless of your limitations, commit yourself to Christ and to his work. And I would also say, even though you may not know what all this entails, even though you may be uncertain about next year, some of you may be thinking, I don't know if I'm going to be around next year or even two years from now. I don't know if it's really worth committing myself to this congregation in this community if my work is going to take me elsewhere in, in a couple of years. And I would say, look, 
whether you're here for two months or two years, this is what God has called you to right now. And I would say, despite future uncertainties, commit yourself to his work and be a part of what God is doing and see what God will do through you and through this church in the ways that he's going to impact this community. So as we live in between two advents, as we look back at what he has done in entering into our world, our mess, our brokenness, yes, we are thankful. We, we praise God for what he has done. But we also look forward to what he would do upon his return. And in the meantime, we as a people of God, we say yes, despite the questions that we have, despite the doubts that linger in our hearts, and despite the struggles that we have, counting the cost, we say, yes, God, take me to a deeper commitment into your word, into your community, and into the work you're doing. And use me to bring a piece of your kingdom right here in this church and in this congregation. Let's pray together. God, we thank you. We thank you for coming into our world. We thank you that you did not leave us in our sin, in our brokenness, but Lord, you, out of great love and mercy, entered into our world to be with us, to be God, Emmanuel, and ultimately to renew and restore us and you're going to do that when you return for the second time. And our hearts long and ache for that day when you make all things the way it was meant to be. But we also realize that in the meantime, you have called us to participate in this great work. And we want to, despite our limitations and weakness and uncertainties, Lord, we want to say yes. And we want to offer our heart our lives to you and ask that you would do this work in us but also through us so that this church this neighborhood and the community will experience the heaven that is to come as we learn to love and serve those around us in christ's name we pray amen